<laughs> Round of applause for welcoming Bill Mason. all of those um, issues, but I really um, came here to talk about one of my most enjoyable subjects, as Susie said, I am a beekeeper. Can you all hear me? Am I, I don't mind. Is Ted, you can walk around with me? No, I'll, I'll come walk around with you. There, is that better? generation beekeeper. My family brought bees over, or one of the first families to bring bees over to Nova Scotia back in the late 1600s, early 1700s, and we've been really keeping bees in one form or another since then. I got involved with beekeeping with my grandfather, who lived in um, New Hampshire. He was a retired um, naval officer, um, and he had a small farm there and kept bees, and we spent the summer there. Uh, didn't matter where in the world we were, Mom and Dad packed us up and sent us to New Hampshire. And we spent the summer there. Very enjoyable. But um, I guess I'm going to talk about that. But I'm going to talk today about the life of the honeybee, the money bee, the economic impact the bees have on us. And then I get a lot of questions about the bee crisis or what's called colony collapse disorder. So I would like to address that and maybe get rid of some of the myths that are out there in the Facebook land. But, um, And here she is. This is a worker bee. This would be a, um, a I guess I could welcome this side. This would be a female. All the, um, all, all the bees that um, actually do the work in the hive are female bees. They're what are called diploid. They have a full complement. Full complement. Can you all hear me? Okay, I'll talk about this is a what we call this is a female worker bee. This is the bee, this is the bee that we cast and the bee that does all the work in the hive. She takes care of the queen, she takes care of the baby bees, she out in the field collecting the nectar and the pollen, so the bees have a uh, nutritional source. And you'll notice on her back leg you see these yellow nodules. That's actually a pollen nodule. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more because poll pollination is why God created this insect. And without this insect and the pollination, basically every third mouthful of food you have that you normally eat would be gone because they are responsible for that. And we'll talk about what makes the bee so much different as a pollinator from like flies, moths, butterflies, bats, and birds. But these are your three types of bees that you have in a hive. 
It's the queen bee, and she, you can see she's elongated. She is the only fertile female in the hive. And she, during the season right now, she's laying, starting to lay up to 2,000 eggs a day. She lays eggs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The worker bees will form, as she moves to the hive, the worker bees will form a circle around her. And they'll touch her and they'll pick up on her pheromones. And her pheromones are her fragrance. That's how she controls the hive. The strength of her pheromones determines the condition of the hive. So if those pheromones are strong, the worker bees know that they are a good range of bee and they're a strong active hive. As those pheromones diminish over the years, then they realize they will need to replace them. They will form a new queen and then kill this queen. Uh, but generally, the queen will live three to five years under good, good conditions. That's Enter. No, just the yeah. arrow down. Or, yeah. Oh, okay. Then you have, the next bee you have, is actually this bee down here. This is a drone. This is a male bee. And this bee is what they call haploid. It has half the number of chromosomes that a normal organism would have. And that's because the, the male comes from an unfertilized egg. The queen can make a conscious decision whether to fertilize an egg to produce a worker bee or not to fertilize an egg to produce a male bee. Male bees do one thing in the hive. They don't help in any way. Shake the queen. They nest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew I'd get a laugh out of it. They do one thing, and I said, mate with the queen. When they mate with the queen, they die. And the queen is typically mate with the 12 or 15 drones. So um, he has a very short lifespan. And the other thing that's going to be a laugh is when the wintertime comes, takes all the male bees out of the hive and kill them. <laughs> <laughs> the male bees do not overwinter in a hive because they're not conductive. What we call a superorganism or the hive itself. And as, as I said, this is a worker bee. Um, the worker bee, like I said, comes from a fertilized egg and has a full complement of chromosomes that does all the work in the hive. This is the bee that you see out in the field. When the bee is first born, go um, When the bee is first born, it takes care of things inside the hive because it's called a house bee. The bee that you see in the field is at the end of its life. And it typically has about 12 to 15 days to live once it becomes a field bee. And the reason being is that they have a membrane on their wing. This is an insect, so it has three segments. We're going back to sixth grade biology here. Three segments, it's got a head, a thorax, the abdomen. It's got four wings, six legs, eyes, antenna, all the features of a normal insect. But its wings are a membrane. So as, that, as she's flying every day, back and forth, maybe 30 trips a day, picking up nectar, water, pollen, whatever, her wings become tattered. And as it becomes tattered, she'll leave the hive, land on a flower, suck up the nectar, which is about, you know, increase your body weight by about two times. She'll go to take off, she doesn't have enough lift, she crashes to the ground and environs. Such is the cycle of life. <laughs> so forth. So as you can see here, here's the egg. It looks like a little tiny, tiny, tiny uh, a grain of rice. And then it'll go through its stages, um, go through metamorphosis, just like a caterpillar, and it becomes a butterfly. 
the larva spins a cocoon inside of the of the comb and then goes through metamorphosis and comes out as a worker bee about 21 days. It takes for that cycle. And then here's the day one, as I said, it was a, it's a nurse bee. And then you see the foraging bee at the end of its life. So in the summertime, the bee's living about 45 days. In the wintertime, they actually go through a physiological change and develop fat cells. And they live for about 60 to 90 days. Because they're not flying as much. So they're fat bees. Okay, our relationship, as we can document, goes back at least 7,000 years. This is from a, um, a cave painting in southern France. And it depicts the individual climbing up the side of a cliff. These are bees flying around her when she's reaching into the hive to the nectar. We're getting the honey because it's the only source of sweetness that early man had. We didn't have candles. We didn't, they might have had maybe whale oil or something like that. But Beeswax and honey are two very valuable commodities to early man. Next one. This is, comes from the in, inside of an Egyptian tomb. These are clay. This is man's first attempt at managing the hives. So these are clay hives, cylinders. Bees come in one end, they smoke them, they can reach in this end and get out the, the comb without killing the colony. So that's an early Egyptian, probably about 5,000 years ago. This is a, a depiction of a, um, a group of uh, individuals down in Brazil. This is a, a bee that actually builds on um, oh, um, rock cliff faces. And they have these ladders and they go up and down. But again, it just depicts the pursuit of sweetness, how important that sugary substance is to our, to our lives, basically. In some cases, how bad it is. So then we come to the land of milk and honey and formerly known as cream and sugar, but um, this is what Europeans perceived America to be. And there were no honeybees in the United States or in on our continent. They were bought, they were brought over uh, first from Barbados to um, old place outside of Charleston. It was the first colony, and then it brought to um, Jamestown. And then they were brought to um, Virginia colonies, and then they were brought up into the Pilgrims of Massachusetts, and then they were brought into the Nova Scotia. So, um, <coughs> and they were brought over on ships. And what they did, is my little skip around there? Yeah. yeah. This was the traditional beehive that Europe. And the lady made this for me down in Charleston many years ago. It's been kind of tattered. But um, what they did is they put these on the ships. They would close them up, put the bees in here, and they would bring these over and they would put them obviously on the back end of the ship. And uh, so, you know, if there was any um, issue with bees getting out or anything like that. But the bees could live in here for about 90 to 120 days. And they would feed them, but they had water and stuff. So um, this is a, a traditional skip, and it was still used up until up until uh, about the eight, 1800s in this country. And as you can see, this is this is Kevin. Can you see a picture of him? That's me. <laughs> but this is uh, this is how 
in early days, once the bees came, even though some of those colonies failed, the bees survived because it really was a land of milk and honey to eat. There was no competition. So they had the entire flora of the United States that they were for, or North America that they were supposed to. They just thrived. And they just continued to go on and on and on across the country. And the colonizers, the entire United States, and the Indians followed white man's flies in pursuit of the migration um, of our vast ancestors across the United States. So. But anyway, this just, um, this is another traditional hive. This is a log hive. And this is um, really how, in South Carolina, most bees were kept until about 1860. And what they would do is they would go into the swamps and they would find a, um, a sweet gum tree. And they would turn into the bees from there and they would come back at night and they would cut a bug below it and they would carry it on back to the farm. And this is hollow. They put a lid on it and they'd have a, a base on it and then they'd go ahead and they'd harvest honey from the time. Some ingenious um, beekeepers, they take this, and this is what my grandmother used to do, because that's how my grandfather kept bees for a while when I was real little. And, but she would take one of these and she would take some sticks and put it in here and she'd put it on top of this like that. And the bees would move up in here and they'd build honeycomb on the sticks, kind of as a frame or a foundation. And then she'd take this off smoke them out, take the honey harvest, and leave the bees in the collar. This is when she goes to take back on again. She did this a dozen times in the spring, and maybe half a dozen times in the fall. So it was a way for her to manage hives and um, without killing the bees and causing my grandfather to get grief. <laughs> um, and this, this is where we are today. This is a picture from the 1800s. And it's supposed to depict the Reverend R.R. Langstrom. He is the father of modern beekeeping. He determined bee, what is called bee space, that bees will not build uh, comb between uh, creates a new space. So if you have two frames that are parallel and creates a new space between them, bees will build that out and you see a traditional honeycomb as opposed to the cross comb and gum and all that. So, this, he is what they call the father of the um, movable frame. So you can take these out and manipulate them and manage them. And this is one of my yards. This is over, uh, this was in Bishopville, uh, but that's the modern beehives. Um, you can see all these boxes have the frames in them. So, so is each one of those considered a hive? Each one of those considered a hive. Okay. Each of these ones are three. Stacks probably have about 80,000 bees a piece. So, um, and then these probably down here maybe about 40 to 50,000. Um, how do bees make honey? Well, that's just one of the products that they make for us. But basically, they go to the flowers that you plant, and the flowers secrete a nectar. And the reason they secrete a nectar is they want to attract. These pollinators, pollinators, and sweetness, the bees can smell that sweetness. So they go in there, and the, and the flower cleverly has it at the bottom of the base of the flower. So the bee has to go in and have this thing for a proboscis. It's like a soap straw, it's a tongue, and they stick it down in there, 
suck up that nectar to get carbohydrate. But in doing so, they get down into the hive. I'm going to pass these around. And all over their body um, is, is pollen. sucks up this nectar, brings it back to the hive, it meets a bee, and that's a field bee that's coming back, so it meets a bee at the entrance, and those two bees join the proboscis together in the hands. One bee regurgitates, the field bee regurgitates the nectar to the house bee. The house bee takes it in, and then starts to really see what dehydrate. So it's coming in about 60% of water, so they want to get it down to 18 so they'll go in and they'll blow bubbles, increase the surface area of six or seven thousand of those which are fanning their wings, and simultaneously in order to create an airflow, so the airflow goes through the hive, evaporates the water from the bubble, and dehydrates. They do that thousands of times, day in and day out, like regardless of that sound. It's a long process. Then when it gets, once it gets down to the right moisture content, they put it into a cell and they put a wax coating on it. And it's good for, I think it's only about 5,000. The honey never goes back. The honey that you've got right there, you can give to a great rancher. And it will still be there. It will crystallize. Crystallization is just a natural process. All you have to do is warm it up. Again, if it's crystallized, it makes a great. I watch this makes a great facial scrub. There's a lot of uses. Okay, now we're going to talk a little bit about why God created these insects. And this is again, just like that very first slide I showed you. Here's her pollen basket, and she's actually collecting pollen, or collecting nectar, and consequently also collecting pollen. So she has. I don't know if you can see it right here, but. Go to the next one. These are the hairs of her body, and you can see they're forked. And these are actually pollen granules, pollen hairs. So what's happening is she's flying through the air, seeking out her food source. She picks up an electrostatic charge from the air, just like when you go to our feet crossing the ditch when you examine the exact. But she's got that same kind of charge. So she's got a positive charge flying through the air. The pollen is naturally negative. Jumps onto her body, and then um, she collects it. She has to break it from the back of her pulling, and she grooms herself. She's grooming herself. And she's collecting that pollen with her mandibles. She's packing it to slide into her um, back pollen masses because pollen is has greater than two percent. So. Has more protein than So pollen is the protein source. The nectar is the carbohydrates. You've got your steak and potatoes. It's the food source for the honeybee. So they'll mix them together and form what's called the bee bread. And they'll put it together. 
again, it's not going to do something. It's going to feed that little water. They feed it. That's, that's the reason. So why pollen is so important to the honey. Um, now, is that much? Is that actually honey? Pollen and honey nectar? It's called bean bread. But it's not? No, honey is what you, what you have right here. Honey. Now, there is pollen in this honey because I don't super filter my honey as raw. I do strain it sometimes. But there are, if you hold that up to a bright light, you can see some of the pollen raining is in there. Again, that's what makes it natural. And that's why people like local raw honey, because it has that, because you have to be super filtered like what you buy at Sanford and Walmart or something. Not all the good stuff, but then. Okay, this is just, I, I, I like this slide because um, there's a, Thing flying around on Facebook, I think this is Albert Einstein said, if the honeybee dies, we'll all starve in like five years. But I don't think he, I don't think he ever really said that. But <laughs> these are all the foods that are directly related to the honeybee. If the honeybee disappeared tomorrow, all of this would be gone. Now, Ooh, yes, what now? You said that they weren't native to North America, so we. I'll explain. The difference, what makes the honeybee so different from any other pollinator, I mean any other pollinator, is that they are what they're called flower specific. So when a bee leaves the hive and she lands on a peach blossom, she will continue to work peach blossoms until she returns to the hive. An extremely efficient method for cross pollination. Butterfly, a moth, a wasp, they might go to a peach tree, and next time they might go to my little tomato, they might go to a, a cherry tree, they might go to an apple tree. They're not flower specific. Honeybees are the only flower specific pollinator. And that's why they're so important to producing these crops, because most of these crops are what we grow as far as grow crops. There are crops that are wind pollinated by corn, which are not dependent upon the honeybee. It's interesting, pollen from corn is very, very low in protein because it's not reliant on attracting the insect pollination. So it's not just honey. Um, these are some of the other products uh, soybeans, alfalfa, cotton. We do a lot of pollination of cotton in South Carolina. The big thing is, when we put our hives on the cotton farmers, he's going to get 11% yield increase per acre. But more importantly, where the money is, he's going to make two to three more seeds per pot. And that's where the farmer makes his money. He breaks even on, on fiber, he makes his money on, on four seeds. So we can help him there. Almonds, 100% dependent on honeybees. Honeybees, this is just kind of gives you representation of the importance. The gold rush was a big deal in California. Nothing compared to the almond rush. This is billions and billions and billions of dollars year after year after year. And it's all dependent upon the honeybees. We bring two and a half million colonies into California every year. We, we meaning we. I only bring, bring 200. <laughs> Eric Mills, who's the largest beekeeper in South Carolina, 
He lives on Palm Hollow Road in Darlington, New York. He takes 6,000 copies. He lines up the tractor trailers in the three days. Put the bees on tractor trailers and send them to Palm And it's amazing. If you ever have a chance to go to Bakersfield in about January 15th, it's amazing to see the influx. Thousands of acres and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people quite impressive. Noisy. Boom. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what has been termed the bee crisis of pollen collapse this week. Because I think that's where y'all can have the biggest impact on helping not only honeybees, but all pollen. And I'll talk about some trends that have happened in this country, particularly using pesticides in the last uh, 15 years. Um, of course, all of this stuff interacts with the with the honeybee. We have fungicides that we apply. We have insecticides. We have poor diet because now economic pressures have caused the farmers to, to grow as close as they can. There are no more hedgerows or very small hedgerows between fields. And that's where the bees were feeding. They were not necessarily feeding on the soybeans. And, uh, they were feeding on what is in between the, the rows. Uh, that's in between the fields, I should say. So we've got neonicotinoids, and this is probably the biggest one that we've heard about that in Maine and Europe. There's a lot of discussion. There's some pluses and some minuses. Next slide. Um, so we've got those pressures, and then we have other pressures such as nosema. We have American foulbrood, European foulbrood, which are bacterial diseases. You know, stuff, that kind of thing. Um, They've been around a long time. We have ways to control them. Uh, fungal, uh, not so much a problem. Uh, viral have, is a new type of problem that we've had. And it really comes all the way back to this world. There's, there's the varroa mite. The varroa mite came into the United States in 1983 and it decimated. We lost about 70% of the range columns in the United States in two years because of that bug. Guess where the first place it came to? Charleston, South Carolina. It came from Africa. We are ground zero for the Varroa mite, the Varroa destructo, because it's genus and species. And I could who was a professor at Princeton University, did a lot of study, a lot of research on this little burger. And what it does is, go to the next one. You can see it has, it's like a, um, like a horseshoe crab. Good way to think about it. It's got the legs to kind of, it's got the sucking out parts. So what happens is that during its reproductive phase, it goes down into the cell and it gets on the developing, um, B actually sucks its juices out, but it's a vector for viruses. Just like a mosquito can carry uh, malaria and different uh, fungi, all these different things that you can get from the body of the mosquito. Well, that varroa transfers the virus to the honeybee. Our American honeybees never had that virus. No immunity whatsoever. And that's what it is, just like flu 
people from completing 18 languages. Killing thousands of people, killed thousands of colonists. This is what it looks like on a, an adult bee, and uh, it would be about the size of a pie plate if it was stuck in your back. So, you know, you can notice something like that in the back, but um, the varroa mite has been a real issue. Um, the next one we have is fairly new. This is Nozema. This is a, it started as a protozoa, and they reclassified it as a flagellant because it does have a flagellant on the end. But this is a relatively new parasite that we've had to deal with. We've had some real good luck trolling it. No, it didn't come in the South Carolina first. I think it was like California, some places in Kansas. And this is a sign. This is what the outside of your hive looks like. It really causes dysentery. The bees get diarrhea, basically, and then they just die from being in dehydration. But we can solve that. That one's not a problem. This, now we're starting to get into things that really, as a, as a scientist and beekeeper, concern me. And this is the trend that we have in this country really since about 2000, 2001. We've had a fundamental shift in the types of pesticides we use in this country. We've gone from what are called contact pesticides, where the farmer would go out and follow the application rules and you'd see the spray early in the morning or late in the evening when the pollinators were out and you'd spray it onto the plants. You know, three or four days later, the rain comes and wash it off in a half life, 15 days, and it's gone. And we're getting residual. Well, I'm trying to make the uh, better apple, I guess. It came up with what they call neonicotinoids. They're from the nicotine family, and they're what they call systemic, meaning that they are throughout the entire plant. So they're in the leaves, they're in the tissues, and guess what else so, a bee goes and gives a drop of nectar, brings it back, doesn't kill the bee, but again, it's 60% water and 30% nectar. So it brings back this to another bee. Another bee goes to the same plant or same animal plant, brings it back. So as time goes on, it starts to compound. As the bees are dehydrating it, it becomes concentrated. So if you remove the water, you got it. Solute solution, and remove the solution, all the time left is the pesticide. Unfortunately, the EPA did not require Monsanto uh, and different pesticide companies to test this poison at the larval level. They tested it on the molecules, didn't kill them. They didn't test it on the effects of the larva. And that's the problem we're having. So, um, as these increase, and you can see it's a, it's a significant increase. It's gotten so pervasive that the plants, I would bet that 99% of you purchasing plant at your house are contaminated with neonicotinoids. If you buy them at Home Depot, you want those and buy them from buying plants or any of these major um, plant producers. They are treated with sustained pesticide. And there was a warning on it. You said you're coming off. No, 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 I'm just very sorry. Oh, okay. No. So the best, best advice is get them from your friends, get them from your neighbors, go to the Hartsville Farmers Market on the 3rd Saturday, starting in April for the rest of the year, and buy your plants. 
and people that you know understand these depressions. Or seed, if you plant your seed. Even the seeds can be true. You have to read the labels. They are required by the federal government to put that label on potted plants. Sometimes they think they have to look real hard to find them. And it's supposed to be on the seed container too. But I would encourage you, if you can, to start to reduce the amount of big box plants and stuff that you get. Sorry, question. Can you give us some <coughs> names that we would recognize with regards to these places? Like, for instance, Roundup. I mean, I'm not saying Roundup is it. You know what I'm saying. Some people. <coughs> It says this on the plant bulb thing. It sticks in the plant bulb and one side tells what color it's going to be. Does it need sunshine and that kind of shade? Does it flip it over on the back side? And the plant is treated with a systemic pesticide. It is supposed to say that on the label. So I would encourage you to they always read the labels. Ah, why don't they stop? Because it's number one, you've got 350 million people to feed, you're not going to feed them in the um, Is there less um, damage to the environment using, to the total environment using these pesticides? Yes. Because when they're applied, they're either applied at the sea level or they're sprayed on at one time so there's no pesticide drift. And if you remember, I think last year, a few years ago, they sprayed those. Um, trees in Oregon, I think it was a Washington State, and they killed all the bees that were in there because of the pesticide drift. Um, so there is some argument that is made that these are actually better for the environment. Um, I would have to say that depend upon the type of crop you're trying for. They're better for your petunias and your um, plants that you have in your garden? No, I don't think so. Are they better maybe for soybeans? cotton and sugar beets and that kind of thing. Well, so I'll say yes, very cautious. But you have to remember that about 70% of pesticides used in this country, in this country are used by us at home, on our yards. You know, the farmer may be responsible for 25 to 30% of them, but we are real big. Then right up. Okay, I, I, go ahead. <laughs> um, this just a, this just shows this is American fowl brood. Just kind of shows the, the bacteria gets in there and just turns to the next turn has a very foul smell. Plus the word foul brood kills kills the bees. The only way to cure this is what we call fire. Uh, in South Carolina, it used to be that any any hive that was um, diagnosed with foul brood was immediately burned uh, and. Now we can use some uh, teramycin and some things like that. But the best thing is you can breed this out of your bees. To a good beekeeper, you can get rid of this without having to use any antibiotics. But, and that's, that's, that's what they call the rope test. You can see this is a matchstick. You take it in the cell um, and you twirl around and pull it out, and it comes out 
have a brown growth that's uh, global temperatures, I'm not a big believer. I, 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 I am a believer that the, the climate does change and it changes constant. However, I'm not a big believer that these individuals have much impact. I a little bit. I believe in clean air and clean water, but um, I like to fly there. So, <laughs> but I'm, I'm conservative at it. So the climate change, what it has done, um, at least in our area, used to be February 15th was the go-to date. And you drive down the highway, you go through the swamp, and you look and you see the red tinge in the trees. That was the red maple. It was always there by at least February 15th. Now it's more like January 1st. So there is a change. Things are being heavy in the environment and noticing the change. So um, I don't think this is catastrophic. This is what the team of naysayers would say. But um, as you can see, we have made a, a return as far as the number of uh, colonies. Um, so as far as colony collapsing, just ordering the B dial, we turn the corner and we're our colony increasing. You can see down here about 2005 is the lowest points when Dave Hackenberg, who's a beekeeper in Pennsylvania, first went to the EPA about this common collapse. And so we have, we're making the trends our friends. But as I said, you can save the bees by using, um, changing the planning techniques of the flowers and things that you have around your garden. Any other questions? Oh, I did, and I even brought samples. This is, these are, honey is only one thing that the bees Oh, 
Yes. And kind of think of the um the holly. Yeah. Or if you plant an oak tree, or I live on in the old section of Florence, and we have a, a 125 year old, it's called a Darlington oak tree, not that long. And that thing blooms, there are thousands of flowers on it. So that has a much bigger impact on bees than just a small little bed of flowers. And you're absolutely right about the old white tree. You cannot really see bread, you see bread is gray. And if they look at it, Thank you. 